Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and I am the host of the podcast titled Revolution Z. This is our 114th episode, and our topic this time is anarchism and economic vision. I think there will be two or perhaps even three episodes devoted to this topic. It will take up various criticisms, sometimes held by many, and sometimes likely held by only a few anarchists. I mainly hope that the presentation will fuel serious discussion trying to resolve differences between some anarchists, anti-pericanists, you might say, and other anarchists, pericanists, you might say. To start, I assume serious anarchists of all persuasions reject all structural hierarchies of power and reward based on position in the economy, culture, polity, or kinship. I assume serious anarchists of all persuasions also want to reduce to a minimum the exercise of power of any one person or group of people over any other individuals or groups. And I assume some serious anarchists of all persuasions support, when possible, free association of informed actors exercising a self-managing say over decisions that affect them. And I certainly profoundly agree with all of that, and have done so, I guess, since I read Kropotkin and Bakunin over 50 years ago. So I will try to answer various accumulated concerns and criticisms of participatory economics rendered at various times and places by at least some, and often a good many, anarchists. For reasons of space, I will not recount the basics of participatory economics at this time, other than to say, here at the outset, that the institutions Paricon deems necessary for a fulfilling, free, informed, and self-managing association of workers and consumers are workers and consumers self-managing councils in place of private ownership and top-down decision-making, remuneration for duration, intensity, and onerousness of socially valued work, plus need when medical or other reasons warrant, instead of remuneration for property, power, output, or only need. Balanced job complexes equalizing the empowerment effects of jobs instead of corporate divisions of labor that include monopolization of empowering positions by a relative few who I call the coordinator class. And, for allocation, participatory planning, or cooperative negotiation of inputs and outputs, instead of markets, central planning, or any combination of the two. Fuller presentations of participatory economy's logic and its short list of defining features are available in many forms, perhaps most easily via the Znet website, but also in many Revolution Z podcasts. If you just go back to the beginning and run through the podcasts, there's plenty on the vision. Indeed, those past episodes of Revolution Z aren't at all time-bound, and each week there are a few hundred listeners to ones in the past so I hope you will consider subscribing to Revolution Z on your favorite podcast host and visit ones from the past. This episode, however, will address various anarchist concerns in considerable detail, as well as related strategic issues. So, to start, even before they directly address participatory economics itself, we have to consider that a considerable number of anarchists reject having any substantial future institutional vision at all. This is actually a widespread view, sometimes very explicit, other times unstated but felt. Indeed, it isn't only relevant to participatory economics, but really to any vision at all. So, as a first concern to address, anti-vision anarchists feel that people do not and cannot possess sufficient knowledge or intelligence to predict the future with much confidence. Proposing visionary blueprints, therefore, they say, nearly always exceeds what we can know. It tends to saddle us with likely wrong commitments. 
blueprinting tomorrow will typically make serious errors. Participatory economy is too detailed, they claim. To respond, I think the first thing to note is that anti-vision anarchists are not actually anti-vision. No one is. They are anti-blueprint. More, the feeling that the future is complex and we cannot sensibly blueprint it without making major errors is transparently and obviously correct. Assuming the word blueprint refers to a detailed description or even an instruction guide mapping future societies. So the issue becomes, is participatory economics a blueprint? Well, you have to judge. But Paricon advocates contest any characterization of Paricon as a blueprint. We deny that Paricon goes too far to be confident about. What Paricotists believe is that we opt for a kind of minimalist maximalism. That is, we seek the minimal list of future institutional features essential for future citizens to maximally control their own destiny as they choose. We seek a list of economic institutional features that are necessary for classlessness and informed free association, but no more than that. And we seek only such necessary features which we have more than enough accumulated experience and evidence to justify. Every anarchist would agree, I think, that there are some requirements we can and should make of a better future, on grounds that without those innovations the future will not be better. We should not have slavery. We should not have wage slavery either, and so on. So the question becomes, are the positive innovations that Paricon calls for, the four institutional aims we noted earlier, necessary for a better future? To argue that Paricon's four positive features are not necessary, an anarchist or anyone else, would have to make a case that we can have classlessness and informed free association without workers and consumers having councils and assemblies through which to develop, express, and manifest their preferences. Or they would have to make a case that we can have classlessness and free association using some other way than Paragon's equitable remuneration to determine people's share of the social product and their income. That is consistent with anarchist desires. Or they would have to show some other anarchistically worthy approach to the division of labor or to allocation than Paricon's choices. In claiming not to have gone too far, Paricon advocates argue that without self-managing councils, whatever they are called and whatever detailed nuances emerge in them over time and through experience, there is no workers and consumers self-management and thus no free association. Not only have these structures always emerged when workers in factories and consumers in neighborhoods have begun to take control of their own lives, but literally, as a matter of logic, if these constituencies are going to exert their wills, they must have a place to convene to do so. Similarly, participatory economics argues that without equitable remuneration for duration, intensity, and onerousness, whatever it is called, and whatever detailed nuances may emerge in it over time and through experience, there will inevitably be sources of unjust disparities of circumstance and income, as well as perverse incentives that will cause those disparities to multiply and grow, while also distorting the allocation of energy, labor, and resources. To remunerate according to property power output has these devastating effects, breeding violations of everything that anarchists and periconists aspire to. This is for the most part agreed by anarchists, so that the only real issue here is whether one can dispense with remuneration calculations entirely, or said differently, whether one can remunerate solely according to need, a matter to be dealt with separately as a different anarchist concern. Similarly, 
the participatory economics advocate, claims that without balanced job complexes, whatever they are called, and whatever detailed nuances emerge in them over time and through experience, there is a familiar corporate distribution of responsibilities that inevitably produces class division and class rule. As with the above cases, this is virtually self-evident by simple assessment of our current work experiences, and it is also evident through all history of capitalist and post-capitalist experiments and systems, not least the history of anti-capitalist movements, projects, and, quote, socialist economies. If one opts for jobs that give roughly 20% of the population all the empowering tasks and leave rote and repetitive disempowering tasks to the remaining 80%, it is easy to predict and explain, and also to see in the evidence, that the former coordinator class members will control outcomes, garner greater reward, and, if not immediately, then over time, rule over the latter working class members. Goodbye, classlessness. And similarly, without participatory planning, basically cooperative, horizontal negotiation of inputs and outputs in light of full social and ecological costs and benefits, then whatever it is called, and whatever detailed nuances emerge in it over time and through experience, the periconist argues for allocation there will either be market competition or central planning, or a combination of the two. And accompanying each of these modes of allocation, taken in any mix, there are inevitably incredibly destructive outcomes, including class rule and ecological calamities. For most anarchists, again, there is really no debate about Parikhan's rejection of markets and central planning. Like Parikhanis, anarchists see these ways of determining allocation as inevitably wrecking the environment, imposing harsh inequality, and finally also guaranteeing class division and class rule, even in the absence of private ownership. What participatory economics does is to propose the broad features of an alternative approach to allocation that escapes the ills of markets and central planning and accomplishes the needed allocative functions, all compatibly with classlessness, with self-management, etc. An argument that Parikhan goes too far and enters into the category blueprint would entail showing that what it says about allocation goes beyond what we can reasonably know based on historical evidence, current experience, and our own analysis of each, and make damning errors. That would be substantive. I would hope anarchists would hope that participatory planning is worthy and viable, and therefore that they would look closely at it, experiment with it, and not dismiss it pretty much reflexively. The only prevalent anarchist alternative regarding allocation that I can find is, again, to seek to avoid the complications of allocation by doing away with pricing, budgets, income, and essentially any need at all for any sort of accounting, by relying on producing according to ability and consuming according to need, which view we will take up soon. More, bearing again on the matter of rejecting a blueprint, the pariconist argues that the four minimalist institutional aims of participatory economics are not only essential to having a self-managing, classless, free association, but taken together that the four institutional commitments also pretty much guarantee that desired result. Even further, the pariconist argues that these minimal features, already being only a fraction of the features of any full economy, are themselves not blueprinted but rather that Parikhan forcefully emphasizes that in different places and times, and even in different industries and communications, their implementation will involve different detailed patterns for which Parikhan's descriptions provide many examples. In short, 
If vision is inevitably ignorantly wrong due to going beyond what we can know and what we ought to concern ourselves with, then it ought to be easy to demonstrate that Parikhan is ignorantly wrong. Short of doing that, the opening criticism is certainly a valid worry, but it is no more than that. Some anarchists additionally argue that vision tends to go too far in a different way. Their concern is not about being right or wrong, the blueprint concern, but about being authoritarian or not. They say, for example, that participatory economics, or any serious institutional vision, usurps rights of people in the future to decide their own lives, describing what will be around in the future, even if everything that is offered is logically and morally sound, will exert authoritarian control over outcomes that should be rightfully the purview of our successors, or of our descendants, I guess. Vision is therefore rejected by this type of critic for being too detailed. But now the problem isn't that it is wrong, but that whether it is sound or unsound, it violates people's rights to make their own choices. My reaction is that the feeling that in proposing a vision we might transgress or even trample the rights and responsibilities of future citizens to decide their own lives for themselves is absolutely correct. More, I also agree that when talking about economic vision, probably including Pericon, Many advocates of vision tend to focus on all manner of features that are not their responsibility to decide. What will be future policies about eating? How much will future people consume more generally? What will the future duration of the workday be? What scale of operations should the future settle on? I am asked such questions all the time, often by people who 10 minutes before were complaining that Paricon is too detailed. Does participatory economics, as a vision, answer these types of questions and thus transgress future people's rightful responsibility to decide all such matters for themselves? No. On the contrary, as a vision, Paricon is very explicit about avoiding doing that, as I and other Periconists continually emphasize. Paricon instead seeks to be minimalist-maximalist, as noted above meaning it seeks to define and then enact only the minimum of changes that are required so that people in the future can maximally self-manage their own choices. It rejects making choices for future people, but it does feel a responsibility to provide future people with opportunity and conditions that permit their making choices as they, in the future, decide. When periconists discuss future policies that are rightfully the province of future citizens, I quite agree with the anarchist observation that we should do so only, if at all, to offer possibilities as informative and sometimes inspiring examples, but not as prescriptions, and certainly not as decisions, and that we should be very clear about this. And I do believe most advocates of Pericon are quite scrupulous about trying to do this regarding, for example, workday length, relations to particular species, likely patterns of consumption, or possible investment projects sometimes explaining possibilities, but in that case also adding that it is not our place to decide any of these matters for future citizens. Rather, it will be up to future citizens to decide their own lives. The same holds as well for the details of implementation of even the four defining features of Paricon. Such details are a matter for the future, depending both on people's preferences and on lessons that we learn between now and the future. There is an irony regarding this that I should relate however, from my own experience. As noted above, often the same person who raises objections to Paricon being a blueprint later asks all kinds of questions that violate Paricon not being a blueprint. They will ask, how long will people work? How much will people consume? 
Will people protect all species? How precisely will folks in a workplace measure intensity of work? How precisely will people decide their collective consumption? And so on. And there is a kind of catch-22. If one provides answers, which would be guesses as to what future people will themselves likely choose to do once they have a liberated context and the means, Joe, the critic, will typically say, hey, that is going too far. And if one doesn't provide answers, Jim, the critic, will typically say, hey, you aren't answering. I got you. Parrycon must do the wrong thing in that regard, assuming the worst. That Joe and Jim might actually be one and the same person makes it all the more strange, and leaves the Parryconists wondering at the underlying logic. Still, an anarchist criticizing vision per se will often continue beyond the above concerns by saying that vision distracts us from the present. Vision often wanders into utopian abstractions, and at worst, it slipsides into sectarianism that curtails thought and creativity. We do not need a utopia, says this anarchist critic. We need to feel the new world in our daily acts and to create it in practice and action, and above all, through experiment. Parikon, however, is offered from above, says this critic, and emphasizes logic, but shows little respect for organic processes and ongoing struggles and campaigns. Parikon violates spontaneity. My reply is that, again, the anarchist critic is right that vision often distracts us into mindless abstraction or sophomoric details, and that people can get sectarian over such useless and pointless pursuits. And the anarchist critic is also right that an attachment to vision can curtail creatively thinking new thoughts by closing us off to options rather than opening us to them. Pariconists agree with these concerns. Indeed, we take such matters so seriously that we build into discussions of Paricon a prioritization of diversity to counter just such possibilities. And of course, the anarchist critic is also right that we don't need a vision that is unimplementable, a utopia. And yes, we agree that we certainly need to create change by our practice, not just our thoughts. And we certainly also need to experiment, not just implement. And logic alone is certainly insufficient. And campaigns, struggles, and even spontaneous reflexes or intuition can be incredibly important and should be carefully respected. However, while we pariconists tend to agree with the validity of all these critical concerns, we nonetheless find the critical anarchist rejection of vision on these grounds incredibly puzzling and counterproductive. Yes, of course, if having vision was of little consequence, then the obvious step to take to avoid risking suffering the possible agreed pitfalls that can accompany vision would be to simply skip developing and sharing a picture of the core institutions of a system to replace the one we abhor. But if having such a serious vision is fundamentally important to attaining desirable ends, then we need some other solution to avoid the problems of having institutional vision rather than simply opting to not have serious institutional vision at all. Foregoing vision to avoid the potential negative side effects of having vision will be too costly. Pariconists maintain that serious institutional vision is indeed that important. That this isn't widely acknowledged by all anarchists and other leftists confuses us greatly. For example, almost all anarchists routinely and rightly urge that movements should embody the seeds of the future and the present. This is very rightly urged on grounds of needing to test our insights and refine them as we learn new lessons, needing to motivate seeking a better future by giving it credence, and needing to ensure that what we are doing in the present aids in actually getting to the sought future rather than obstructing reaching that future. 
Harry kind of disagree with all this. But we then wonder, how does one embody the seeds of the future and the present in an instructive and an inspiring way if one refuses to say, even quite broadly, what will characterize a better future? We think one can't. For example, if Perry got us right about the need for self-managed decision-making via workers' and consumers' councils, equitable remuneration, balanced job complexes, and participatory planning, then at least regarding economics, planting the seeds of the future in the present means at least that these features, as much as possible, ought to be adopted in our current organizations and projects. If the future we seek is, instead, merely a list of nice values, then we have little, if any, guidance for what institutional seeds to currently plant. Let's take this just one step further. Suppose in some country, like Argentina or Venezuela, Workers occupy factories with the intent of transforming them. Or suppose in other countries, like the U.S. or Italy, workers create co-ops with the intent of learning about future potentials and inspiring others to seek a better future. Or suppose in another country, like Spain or Greece, citizens in neighborhoods decide to create assemblies to begin controlling their own lives. In all such cases, the trend toward democracy, participation, and even self-management in councils is virtually automatic. However, the same can't be said for dealing with the old division of labor, and, it turns out, leaving that in place without, for example, planting the seeds of the new future of balanced empowerment relations, in time subverts the other innovations, bringing back a lot of, or even all of, the old crap. The anarchist advisory to plant the seeds of the future in the present is critically important. But to do this, it is also critically important to have thought carefully about key future institutions, so we know what it is we have to quickly and very deliberately incorporate in our current efforts. So yes, we need serious institutional vision to overcome people thinking that there is no vastly better society we can attain. We need such a vision for motivation, and we also need serious institutional vision to be strategic. It is, or it ought to be elementary, that strategy is rooted at two ends. It must arise from the present, with logical coherence and consistency and components that are true to existing reality's current potentials. But strategy must also lead toward the desired future reality. How does strategy do the latter, unless there is some understanding of at least the defining features of that future reality? In fact, everyone knows this simple argument is valid in its general terms. No anarchist would listen for long to an argument that said, we need to develop movements and a good way to do so is to have them owned by private individuals and run by those individuals. Anarchists know that doing that would not be planting the seeds of a preferred future in the present, but would instead nurture weeds that would obstruct reaching the desired future. But how do they know those things without vision? If we, can't do without serious, if we can't do without serious institutional vision because of its important benefits, then what is an anarchist to do about the quite legitimate worries concerning ills that can accompany being visionary? What should an anarchist do about avoiding utopian abstraction and sectarianism, about welcoming thought and creativity, about emphasizing experiment and respecting current struggles, and about not violating spontaneity? Well, the answer seems pretty obvious to periconists. We must have a shared vision, so do vision well, not poorly. Make sure that vision is concrete. Make sure it is worded plainly. Make sure it is argued from experience and uses ideas already familiar to people, or at least carefully and clearly explained in terms of known relations. Make sure that vision is owned by all movement participants and open to and welcoming of criticism, and especially experimentation and refinement. 
Emphasize the need to experiment and to hold diverse views. Celebrate diversity of deed and thought. Make sure vision is created and promulgated precisely to serve and benefit from struggles and campaigns. The implications for organization and strategy of these provisos to avoid visionary pitfalls are plentiful, and many are discussed in periconist writing and discussions. But what about spontaneity, the anarchist may rejoin. First, what does spontaneity even mean? Why is there very often a feeling among activists that that which is spontaneous is true or valid or worthy, and that which is carefully thought through is not? Put that way, one has to wonder. Well, one reason is because a lot of what is thought through is, in fact, not worthy. It is thought through within flawed and even highly oppressive conceptual frameworks. Those viewing this process wrongly decide it is the thinking, the carefulness, that is at fault. So let's avoid that by being spontaneous. This throws out the baby, careful thought, with the bathwater, flawed, and even horrible conceptual frameworks. Paragon opts instead for a better framework. Respecting spontaneity, not idealizing it, means, or should mean, respecting the creative insights that arise from real people in real circumstances trying to advance real and worthy interests. It means seeing such efforts, assessing them, and learning from them. However, it does not mean, or rather it should not mean, that that which is spontaneous, meaning it happens without much pre-planning, is on that account automatically valid, correct, or worthy. Such a view is literally nonsense, as I am sure any anarchist would agree. There can be spontaneous wisdom and insight, both individual and collective, for sure. And to be open to it, to see it, to welcome it, to learn from it, and to then later incorporate its lessons when planning in advance is, of course, highly desirable. But there can also be spontaneous vile behavior, or spontaneous confusion, or what looks like spontaneous insight but is, on closer examination, spontaneous flawed choices. These are truisms. That various people on the left get caught up in confusion about these matters is troubling, and honestly, seems to periconists to have very little to do with seriously thinking about the involved issues. Seriously thinking about the merits, and at other times the debits, of spontaneous activity should lead one to put a premium on dissent and diversity, on protecting minority opinions, on trying to implement multiple approaches whenever feasible, and also on seriously assessing options and certainly not acting as though serious thought is somehow a debit. Yes, there is such a thing as paralysis of excessive analysis. There is also such a thing as thoughtless rapid motion into cul-de-sacs or even self-destruction. If periconists don't abide the indicated correctives and positive themes when they try to formulate vision and strategy, that would be a serious failing. That would be grounds for criticism, but not a vision per se, and actually not even a pericon vision, but of pericon's associated practice. So next episode, we will consider additional anarchist concerns about participatory economics. There are plenty more to consider. But for now, this is Michael Albert, signing off until next time for Revolution Zoo.